are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. New Testament uh, is rich in content. It's rich in uh, what it brings to our daily walk with God. And we have been doing a New New Testament series uh, on the Pauline epistles. These are the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul. And we've covered so far letters that were written to the churches in Corinth, in Rome, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Colossae. And next week, Kristen is going to be talking about some writings to the church in Thessalonica. Say that three times. But tonight, we're going to look at a unique type of letter that Paul wrote. It's not a letter written to the entire church per se. It affects the entire church, but it's not written to the entire church. Rather, it's a letter written to a singular individual who would then use this letter as a guide to the entire church. And these type of letters are called pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. And tonight we want to talk to a letter that Paul wrote to someone who was very important to him and important to the church. And we're going to be talking about the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. I encourage you to have your Bible handy and to take notes if you can. Uh, I've got some ideas for 2020 about Growth University, uh, or 2021. I've missed a year, haven't we all? 2021, uh, that'll help us with this, but I I encourage you to take notes. If you've you've got a journal or something, uh, it'll help you. I want to first discuss the relationship between Paul and Timothy, because I think this is important to the context. So if you happen to pick up the book of Timothy and you start reading it, it's important to know the relationship between Paul and Timothy. There, first we realize that Timothy himself was a native of Lystra. Uh, The scripture tells us in Acts 16 verse 1 that he was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. We get this sense that his father was not a believer, but was a Greek. So this was a unique relationship, certainly in its context, in that there is a Jewish woman who became a Christian that is married to a Greek, an unbeliever, who would have had a pagan background. And so that in and of itself is a little bit of a unique background. And the scripture tells us in verse 2 of 16, he was well spoken of by his brethren who were at Lystra, and Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him, and he had uh, Timothy circumcised and uh, because he knew that he was going to be traveling in areas where there were Jews. And so uh, that uh, was an experience, which is interesting, not to, to derail too much, but it's interesting that Paul would have him circumcised knowing what Paul believed about circumcision, right? Kristen talked a little bit about that last week, that Paul definitely did not think that was something that was necessary for salvation, but because of where they were going and the reception needed, Paul had Timothy circumcised and and. 
that's unfortunate for Timothy. So we'll move on. We know that his mother's name was Eunuch and his grandmother's name was Lois. We read this in 2 Timothy. He was Paul's convert. He was known as the, uh, a son in the gospel or the son in faith to Paul. Paul spent time with him. And he joined Paul on his second missionary journey around A.D. 51. Now, I'm going to give you some dates only to give you a little bit of context. How many hate dates when in history like you you don't follow them well okay these are the people i'm talking to tonight all right ad 51 so we'll we'll use that obviously these are not exact dates but paul's on his second missionary journey he brings uh timothy with him and this is where he has him circumcised and then timothy was with paul throughout this journey and he was even named as a co-sender of six letters. So some of these letters we've already mentioned, but 2 Corinthians, Philip, uh, the letter to the Philippians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, Timothy is part of the sending of this letter. So he's very close to the apostle Paul. I want to put up the map. There's a map that I have that kind of helps you see as I'm throwing out these places, where these are. And you can see Jerusalem to Rome, okay? So you're probably familiar with Jerusalem. You see Rome, and then there's a lot of, a lot of places that Paul visited in between here. So, so Timothy accompanied him on these travels to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and he stayed uh, in Berea. Then he stayed in Berea until Paul sent for him when he was in Athens. And so uh, it was like they were traveling together. Sometimes Timothy would stay in a spot, Paul would go, then Paul would send for him and he would come and join him. And so this is kind of how they, they traveled. Then he sent him back from Athens to Thessalonica and he, he kept him moving, which is, which is in the Greece area. Um, but he, he, he kept him moving. And then finally, uh, Paul goes to Corinth. And then Timothy joins Paul in Corinth, and Paul is then, or Timothy helps him write the book of Thessalonica and what you'll hear about next week. And then later on, Paul takes another missionary journey, and Paul uh, sent Timothy from Ephesus. So you see Ephesus there. He ended up in Ephesus, sent him to Corinth. So Paul is navigating this trip. This is the third and final missionary journey. And Paul then uh, is joined in Macedonia by Timothy. Then he helps him write the book of 2 Corinthians. And then they, they end up in Rome together, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1. They end up in Rome. And then in Rome, when they're together, this is where Timothy separates again from uh, Paul, so he goes from Rome and he travels all the way to Ephesus, and this is where we pick up the book of Timothy. So Paul is in Rome, and now Timothy is in Ephesus, and this is the city. Now, what we skipped over quickly was this is a city on the third missionary journey that Paul had spent um, two, two and a half years and almost three years in Ephesus. Timothy wasn't with him at the time, but Paul spent, or for much of that time, but, but he, he spent a long time there. And so 
about that was in, let's go back, the, the second missionary journey. Leah, what date was that? 51 A.D. In 53 A.D., on the third missionary journey, Paul spends, begins spending time in Ephesus around 53 A.D., spends time in there almost through 56 A.D. Five years after he leaves Ephesus is when he sends Timothy. Timothy's going to be there in, uh, or actually, Paul's going to write another letter, sorry. Five years after that missionary journey, he writes a letter called the letter to the Ephesians. So that's in 61 AD. All right, so 53 to 56 AD, he spends time in the missionary journey in Ephesus. Paul does. He ends up around 61 AD, five years later, writing a letter back to that church at Ephesus. And then in 63 AD, so two years later, Paul is in Rome and he's going to write a letter to Timothy, who is now in Ephesus. So I'm glad I've confused you with all those dates. But the point is that Paul had already spent time in Ephesus. He had been there several times. He had written the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He's now away from them, but he's going to have, he's going to send a letter directly to Timothy to, to help Timothy pastor and be the bishop of the church in Ephesus. So he's very close to Timothy. He spent many, many years with him, coached him in the gospel, and this is the context for the book of Timothy. Now, let's consider the location and, and proximity of Ephesus. What was Ephesus? We know that Paul's writing to Timothy, who is now the bishop in the church of Ephesus, and remember also that these are house churches. This is not a large location with many uh, people sitting in a room like this. It is just churches and houses. And Timothy is responsible to connect to these different leaders in these houses. And we're going to show you that in just a minute. But let's look at the historical context of Ephesus quickly. Pastor Kristen talked about this last week, about the city of Ephesus. It's found on the western shoreline of modern-day Turkey. It was a proud place, a rich place. It was a port city at the end of a caravan route from Asia. So as you travel through, it's going to be the end for a lot of things, and then you're going to take a boat over to Athens or to Greece and, and continue on. So it was in that way a proud city, a city that had a lot of shipping goods, making a lot of money. It contained a, a massive theater. Uh, around 25,000 people could sit in this theater. And it had a town square. It served as a marketplace. It had public baths, a library, a number of temples. And that temple that Kristen referenced last week, we'll talk about it again for just a minute. It was built uh, to the deity known to the Greeks as Artemis and to the Romans as Diana. Not to be confused with our great Diana. It may have been the largest building in, Greek, in the Greek world. This goddess was represented uh, with a, a typical towered head, many breasts. The, the goddess and her cult found expression in the famous temple uh, like Aphrodite did in Corinth. 
and it served it, it was served by a host of hundreds if not thousands of priestess uh, that were basically prostitutes and this is the culture this is this this culture of wealth, this culture of prominence, this culture of sexual immorality, this culture of pagan worship, this is all happening in the backdrop of Paul traveling there and Timothy traveling there and them having churches in homes. There's also a large Jewish population there as well. But this Diana cult generated much trade. And Ephesus became this place for pilgrims to worship. They were eager to come here and worship, but they were also eager to walk away with souvenirs. And hence the uh, prosperous silversmiths and those who made livelihoods by having and making souvenirs. And so this is the backdrop, the historical context. And then this is when we start reading in the Bible, there's, we start understanding what's going on. So let's look at Ephesus through the context of the book of Acts real quick. Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 give us this window into the ex Christian experience in Ephesus. So we talked about this in when we talked about Romans, but it says in uh, Acts 19 verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? So we're not going to dive into that whole story, but Paul arrives in Ephesus, he finds a few disciples and he begins to teach them the word of God and he teaches them baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue. He spoke boldly for three months. This is in Ephesus, reasoning, persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some of them were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and he withdrew to the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrenus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's here in this environment, and he's trying to preach to the Jews. They don't receive him. So he starts going into another school, uh, Tyrannus, and he teaches. And the, from there, in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the words that the word of God got shared uh, with that region. Talks about miracles that happened through Paul during this time. Remember, he's there uh, Two years and three months, maybe longer at this point. So Acts chapter 19 really walks us through this environment. So there, you've got the Jewish synagogue, you've got the Greeks, and then we get into this uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. They said, we exorcise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. There were seven sons of Sceva, Jew Jewish chief priest who did so. Evil spirit came on them, said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on overpowered them, prevailed against him so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on all them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So there's some 
Crazy things happening in the church in Ephesus. Many believed, they made confession, but then watch what happens in 19. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. They counted up the value, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord prevailed, or grew mighty and prevailed. Verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Arrestus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he's wanting to travel. He sends Timothy, but he ends up staying near Ephesus. And we know that because... In verse 23, here he is in Ephesus, and it says, About that time there arose a great commotion about the way. So imagine this temple, imagine this theater, imagine this marketplace, imagine the synagogues, and now you got these Christians mixed in. They're creating a bunch of chaos, and a commotion arises in Ephesus. Paul wanted to leave. He had thought about leaving. He sent Timothy and them out, but now this commotion arises, and this certain guy named Demetrius, a silversmith, he had made silver shrines of Diana, and he was making a lot of money. But because of the Christians and what was happening with the Christians, all of a sudden his sales started going down, and his profits started dwindling. And so he becomes concerned with this. So he calls together all the silversmiths, those who were working in that trade. What were they making? They were making those little figurines for Diana. So he calls them together. He brings them together. And he said, men, you know, verse 25, that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, great is the Diana of Ephesians. It's what we say a lot around here. Great is the Diana of the Calvary Church. We get that. We understand So the whole city of Ephesus was filled with confusion and rushed into that theater with one accord. The whole city, people are coming from everywhere. They're moving into this arena. They're moving into Paul Brown Stadium, right? They're moving to have this conversation. They're upset because of the business that they're losing because of these Christians and specifically Paul. And so when they heard this, they, they, they ran into the city, into the theater. They seized a couple of Paul's traveling companions, Gaius, and uh, those guys, Macedonians. They brought them together. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, so I'm not sure exactly how, where Paul is, but he, he knows about the commotion. He's close enough that he could go into the theater right now and answer the charges. But the disciples would not allow him. Now think about that for a minute. Paul's the apostle, but he had his ear tuned to others' opinions. And they would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. 
Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that like a lot of riots? I don't know why we're here. Some people are doing this, some people are doing that. This is what's happening in the moment. They're upset, everybody's upset, but then they realize we don't know why we're upset. And so they drew this guy, I don't know who Alexander was, this unlucky guy, out of the multitude, the Jews put him forward. So he's a Jew, he's not a Greek. He's not making the shrines. But somehow he gets thrown into the front and he motions with his hand, I'd I'd like to say something, I'd like to say something. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. They drowned him out. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is the Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Let's say that for two hours. It was just a massive crowd just chanting and chanting and chanting. And so finally, after two hours, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, the men of Ephesus he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is a temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or temp- uh, of temples nor blasphemers of the goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, craftsmen have a case against you, let them go to court. So they basically get, he gives them an option. Listen, these guys aren't really doing anything. If you, if you want to bring something against them, take it to court. And so he said, basically, we're in danger of getting the higher in government involved, and we don't want that. And so after that, uproar, verse, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, after the uproar, had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. So now, he says, I'm going to leave. This is the introduction of the church in Ephesus. This is the climate. This is the spiritual context, the historical context. It's the Wild West. It's crazy. It's polarizing. And you have the church being represented by both Jews and Greeks, people on both sides of the equation, and Paul is then compelled. He's going to travel. He's going to do what he needs to do. Now, he leaves there, but his mind, you can tell, is a little bit back there. This is a church that's fragile to him. And so he's concerned in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says from uh, Miletus, he sent Ephesus, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, he himself is not going there. He calls for the elders now, these pastors, these leaders of these house churches. He calls them, and now he's going to tell them something. He says, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I all, always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me, how I kept back nothing, verse 21, testifying to Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to explain to them that their faith is to be in Jesus Christ. But I want you to look at verse 29. 
He says, he, he encourages them to, to take heed of yourself and the flock. He's, he's telling them, take care of the church. But he said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And when he had said this, verse 36, when he had said this, he, he went through some more things. He knelt down, prayed for them all, and, he wept, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that, the, that they would not see his face no more, and they accompanied him to his ship. All right, so Paul has an invested interest in Ephesus. He has an invested interest in Timothy. And so that's what is colliding in First and Second Timothy. Timothy is on site in Ephesus. Paul has already spent time there ministering. He's already taught himself. He's already gathered elders together. But now you're talking about uh, eight to ten years later after that first moment where, where the theater was and, and in that environment. Eight to ten years later, Paul is going to write back to the, that church in Ephesus through Timothy. Think about how much changes in eight to ten years. It's already a fragile church. He already senses the environment's fragile, but now he wants to write to them again. And he already prophesied that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Paul knew that the possibility of false doctrine and the church losing its footing was very real. He knew that, that Ephesus was in the middle of a place that was polarized in philosophy and religion and cultural experiences. He knew ideologies were rampant in that area that would ultimately plague the church. And I think it's a warning to us to realize that, that our environment, our culture does end up coming into the church, whether we want to believe it or not. And so Paul was very adamant to warn them about what was to come. So he writes to Timothy. He begins, and he begins, and I'm going to really move fast here. He begins by confronting the corrupt teachers and their strange teachings. He talks about those in verse number four of chapter one, those who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They promote speculations rather than the stewardship of faith. They're into this philosophy kind of thing. And then he moves on, and he's wanting Paul to have confidence that he has authority and the knowledge to confront these false teachers. And so in verse 18, he said, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. It's interesting he uses that language, knowing he himself has already suffered shipwreck. And so... He's telling Timothy, I believe in you. You have the ability to help lead this church and to help secure them from false doctrine. Then we get into some more difficult aspects of the book of Timothy. Uh, he talks about, uh, first off, that prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he's encouraging prayer. And then he says, for kings... And all who are in high positions, 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and dignified in every way. Now think about where he's writing this is. He's saying pray for the king. Pray for the, the government who had probably oppressed many of them. But he's leading, and my opinion is, he's leading this discussion into a discussion of the value of submission, the value of humility. And so he talks about, he begins with the government authority, those who would want to oppose government. He's saying, pray for the government. Pray that you would lead a quiet and peaceable life. And, and then he outlines a posture of prayer, and it's a posture of humility. First, he addresses men. He said, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, again, this is in the context of prayer. All of this is in the context of prayer. But he said, men, you should lift your hands, holy hands, without anger or quarreling. In other words, in submission. Don't let your prayer be in anger against the government, in anger against these things, but to pray and submit with holy hands. Then he addresses uh, women next. And I'll, I'll confess, this is a very difficult section of Scripture to read and to understand. Peter would talk about Paul's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3.15, and Peter said, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So he's talking about Paul writing. And then he says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. And this is one of those areas of scripture that can be difficult to understand but Paul admonishes women. He said, likewise, like men who have to be prayerful and self-controlled, women have to be prayerful and self-controlled. He said also that women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The backdrop, the cultural backdrop is that the women who, especially those who worship Diana, would adorn themselves in ways that uh, created prominence, that created uh, sexual immorality. And so Paul is saying that is not what honors God. It's not going to be uh, this gold and these uh, things that are, are making you feel like you are valued in society. That's not what is helping the church and bringing glory to God. What's bringing glory to God is that you profess godliness with good works. And again, we, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, and I, I know these are difficult passages, but I, I want to take just a second here with it. He says then, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not per permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, these passages uh, are difficult to understand and they're challenging. But what we know is in the context of all of Paul's writings, women spoke in church. Women prayed in church. Women had leadership roles in the church. So we demonstrated that in the book of Romans. So there's a context here that Paul is addressing. And uh, we don't know all of the context, but 
Personally, I believe he's addressing this idea of submission and humility and understanding the order of creation. That the women, and think about the goddess of Diana, who he's saying that there is an order to the creation of the world. And he's dealing with this in very clear terms for them. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We can blame it all on the women. Right? Okay, that's, that's maybe not what he's saying. He's addressing the fact that sin came into the world because a woman was deceived. And so there's a creative order, there's a creative process. He's addressing that. Then there's another challenging statement. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. So this does not mean, I don't believe this means that you have to have a baby to be saved. Okay? I believe it's referencing back to Adam and Eve. Not only did the woman bring sin into the world, but the woman brought salvation into the world. Now the women can say amen. Because the man had nothing to do with Jesus Christ coming into the world. It was the woman. And so he's challenging this, and then he said, if they continue. So a woman has to have faith, a man has to have faith, they have to have love, they have to have holiness and self-control, all right? And so, again, I acknowledge the difficulty in these passages, but I do not believe that these passages give us license to degrade women or to act like women should never speak in church or ever lead in church. There's too much content outside of this particular passage that lends itself to uh, just the, the ability in Scripture for women to lead and to speak. And so we realize, though, that Paul is addressing order, and he's addressing submission. He's addressing humility. And so he discusses this. I don't have time for this, but 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, Peter kind of walks through wives and husbands and walks through this same idea of submission and uh, the, the sense of honoring the wife and uh, so forth. It's a similar kind of context. So you can read that, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. So Paul continues in 1 Timothy, the discussion on order taking place in the church. He talks about the, the order of the church itself with elders and deacons. He, he tells Timothy that some will depart from the faith due to bad theology, but he says, teach the word. And so he, he encourages him to uh, teach the word, preach the word, and to handle things properly with widows. And he even admonishes Christian slaves. Again, this whole idea of submission right? He keeps coming back to this sense of humility. A slave is already in a humble position, but he's arguing, I believe, that, that we are to always have a humble mind, even if we think we're right sometimes. And so he, he addresses that. What Paul is saying, and let me say this, that Paul in this passage is not advocating for slavery. He's addressing the context of slavery. And I, I could show you in this passage or in Timothy where I believe he is discounting the idea of slavery. First Timothy chapter 6, verse number 3, Paul then begins to end this letter. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, this is how you live 
It's challenging this sense of doctrine, teaching that accords with godliness, that you're learning, you're, you're knowing something, but it also changes your behavior. And so he, he challenges this, and I won't dive into that anymore, but in chapter 6, he kind of addresses that. In other words, what a church believes will shape how it lives. That's what Paul is saying. How a church believes is how it lives, and how you and I believe is how we will live. And so in 1 Timothy, he really challenges that godliness needs to be the outcome of your faith in Jesus Christ. Godliness, that right living. So let's quickly move to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was written to Timothy from Paul around 64 AD. So a few years later, Paul writes again to Timothy. It's a couple years after he had already written once, but this time Paul's in prison. He's waiting his execution by beheading. It will be his final letter. In the letter, you can sense the finality and the importance of carrying on the message. He said, I am reminded of your sincere faith that dwelt in your grandmother and your mother. For this reason, I remind you, verse 6, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I find it interesting that Paul keeps trying to encourage Timothy because Timothy seemed to be kind of a shy person. And he's telling him, you've got it. You've got the authority. You've got the power to do it. He said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. As you move through 2 Timothy chapter 2, you see Paul encouraging Timothy, not that all his problems are going to go away, but that he must endure to the end. So he uses language like, be a soldier, be a good soldier, be an athlete, be a farmer. He introduces these concepts, basically saying, don't give up, stay strong. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And he tells him, Jesus Christ is worth it in the end. He tells them not to be surprised by trials. Don't be surprised by false doctrine and confusing messages, messages of the day. But he said, stand firm on the truth of God's word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we're very familiar with it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so he charges Timothy in this second book, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if there's anything that stands out to me, this stands out to me today in our culture. There's so much on the internet you can listen to that you will want to hear. But I believe that it's important for us to not just find things we like to hear, but to study the Word of God and hear what it has to say for ourselves. I, I, I'll put in a shameless plug for Purpose Institute. If you have not taken Purpose Institute, I encourage you to take it because it allows you to systematically understand the Word of God so that you are not brought 
away from the doctrine of the truth that's found in God's word. And so Timothy, Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay near the word of God. And so sitting in that detestable rat-filled prison, chained to the wall, he has his friend write down these God-inspired words, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. And he concludes that second writing to Timothy with some personal remarks. And even this is where he writes to John Mark and says, send John Mark to me because he's valuable. Remember, John Mark was somebody he pushed against and said, I don't want him coming with me. Now John at the, or now Paul at the end of his life is calling for John Mark. And so in conclusion, what we find in Paul's letters to Timothy is the importance of allowing God's word to reign supreme in your life. Don't chase myths, genealogies, mysterious revelations of the Old Testament text. Don't chase feasts and holidays and customs so that you seem smart. That's what he's telling them. What saves us is the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's that faith in Jesus Christ And it's that surrender and submission to the authority of God's word and the authority of who God is in our life that allows us to be who he needs us to be in this world. And so I want to ask you real quick, give you just a couple minutes as we close here, what scripture has helped you walk through challenging times? What scripture has helped you walk through challenging times and or what scripture has helped you grow and be transformed in Christ? Is there a passage of scripture that has challenged you in your life to grow in your relationship with Christ? I'll give you just a couple minutes. All right, we'll wrap it up here. You'll stand with me tonight. When we read the letter to Timothy, when we read those letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, we see the importance of just standing on the Word of God. But I found it interesting that it was the Apostle John, the one who was with Jesus during the Last Supper, John, the one who was with Jesus at the cross, with Jesus' mother, the one who would be a leader in a church. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But he would finish his days on earth as a leader in the church of Ephesus. It's from Ephesus that he would be put on the Isle of Patmos. And then after he's off the island, he would go back to that church. 
And he writes in Revelation chapter 2 to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor. He's writing to this church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved, uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And part of that could be because of Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy did that work. He said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you were fallen, repent and do the first works, and, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Nicolaitans are not a sect, but they're Christians who are professing to be free, free to do whatever they want. They're free to... live however they want to live, and in particular, they were involved in sexual immorality. But the church in Ephesus, in spite of that great temple, in spite of that environment, said we, we can't allow this to be. We can't accept this as a part of our norm. And it would be Paul who wrote to the Romans, he said, shall we sin that grace should abound? Challenges that idea that grace is not just something that we take advantage of, but that we live righteously, we live godly. See, this reaction of the Nicolaitans was the opposite of Judaism. There were Jews who were saying you have to follow the law. Then there were Greeks who were saying you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to live righteously. And here Ephesus is kind of in the middle of all this, and John writes to them first. And so, when we see the full measure and scope of the struggle of the church in Ephesus, we understand why Paul is writing to Timothy. There's just a great struggle in them. And so I conclude tonight just highlighting of a little phrase that's found in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the last words he writes in 1 Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul says at the beginning of the letter in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, guard the good deposit entrusted in you. And that's what I conclude with tonight, to guard, guard the deposit, the word of God, the spirit of God that's been entrusted to you. 
Don't be overcome by genealogies and myth, and don't be overcome by the, the seemingly uh, enticements of the world and sin and sexual immorality. But guard this treasure. Guard the good deposit of the word of God in you. I want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you, God, for your word that challenges us. I thank you, God, for your congregation tonight. As we look into this word, Lord, we see maybe areas where we can identify with the church in Ephesus. We are in a culture, Lord, that constantly is pushing against our faith pushing against, God, the word of God that's been delivered to us. And I pray you would give us the courage to hold near and guard, God, the word of God, that deposit that's been entrusted to us. Lord, stir up the gift that's within us. Allow your spirit to lead us and guide us and keep us, Lord, in your word and in your way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.